Good morning, everyone. It's exciting to get to be back here with you today. Uh, for those of you who this is your first semester at Cedarville, welcome. We love that you're here. Uh, today we're having SGA Chapel, and my name's Quinn, and I get the privilege of serving as your SGA chaplain. Throughout this year, we've been working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians. We've made it our way through chapter 5, and that brings us to today, where we'll be in chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. Chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. It was fun getting to hear what your guys' highlights were over Christmas, what some of your favorite gifts were. I got a fiance, so it was a pretty good Christmas for me too, so it's not a big deal. Same old, same old. All right, if you guys are there, and if you could stand for the reading of God's word, we'll be starting off in chapter five, verse 11. In verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who cares and that you are a God who loves your creation and that you are a God who cares to reconcile us with you. And this morning, I just ask that our hearts would be stirred, that we would see you for who you are in a clearer picture from you revealing yourself in your word. And if anyone in this room doesn't know you as their savior, Father, I ask that your word would wake them up to see the reality of who you are and their need for you. Father, thank you for how you've called all of us to you and how you allow us to take part in your mission of redemption. Allow your word to have its effect this morning, that people would leave changed to look more and more like the image of your son. Thank you for your son, and it's in his name that I pray, amen. You guys can take a seat. Where do you find your purpose? What motivates you? Why do you do the things that you do? These are questions that we should all be asking ourselves as we self-evaluate. And I fear that many of us can fall into times where we forget our mission, where we forget why we're here. 
where the grace and the things of God can lose their luster. And we take for granted the grace that has been given to us. Maybe because we've experienced it for so long. Maybe it's because of the busyness of life. Whatever it may be. So I hope that this morning that your souls will be warmed and that your resolve will be strengthened as we are reminded of God's redemptive work in our life. I hope that your hearts would overflow as we take in God's word and we were reminded of who we are because of what he did. I hope that together we can see that because God has made us new and has reconciled us to himself, the only response that we can have with our lives is to become his representatives and ambassadors in this life. So, starting off in verses 11 through 13, Paul tells us how we are to persuade sincerely. 11 through 13 say this, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known to you also, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but are giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Paul's pointing us back to the previous section here. It's always important to pay attention to the grammar of the Bible. If you don't know it, take the time to learn it. We see the word therefore starting off in verse 11, so we know we must go back to the previous section. In verses nine and 10 of chapter five, Paul makes the point that our aim in life, that our goal, regardless of the circumstances, is to please the Lord. And if you need any motivation for such a goal, if you need any motivation to aim to please God in this world, verse 10 provides it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due to him for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, it's important to clarify what the judgment seat of Christ is. This is not a place where we will be condemned for our sin. Regenerate Christians are free from condemnation, are they not? This is different from the, great, from the great white throne judgment where unbelievers will receive final judgment before being cast away as it's written in Revelation 20. The judgment seat of Christ is described as a destination for those who are saved. This is not a time of condemnation, but of examination. This is a place where you will receive your reward for your faithfulness or you'll be as one who's building being found to be made of hay and straw, burns in the fire, although you will be saved from it. Though we as Christians cannot lose our salvation and are free from condemnation, this time of us giving account for our lives is still a serious time. Sin causes pain in this world, and when we have to confess sin to someone else who it affects, it is painful to them and to us. And now imagine us face to face with Jesus our beautiful savior, and explaining to him how we hung on to the sins that hung him to the cross. Let this thought motivate you in two ways, brothers and sisters. For one, the fear and understanding of the solemnity of the judgment seat of Christ should drive us to live our lives in a way in which we would not be ashamed if Christ returned right now. In other words, knowing that Christ could come this very hour should drive us to live in a way where that would be more exciting than it would be frightening for us. The other way that this should motivate us is that on that day, when we are face to face with Christ and we see how beautiful and how lovely he is 
we will see that he's more desirable than any amount of money, than any status or renown, or anything else that we could gain. And we'll see that every decision that we made to deny our flesh and to glorify him will have been completely and undeniably worth it. And so, knowing that we will come before God, Paul says we persuade others. Persuade others of what? Paul must mean to persuade them of the fact that one day they too will appear before God, that they too should have a fear of the Lord, that one day they too will have to answer for how they spent their life. But here's the difference. When you are a child of God, you will not be cast away on that day. But if you do not know Jesus personally as your savior, on that day when you appear in judgment, I fear you will have no more chances to turn away from your sin and to turn to him. So I urge you to repent today. Come to Christ today. Do not wait. Do not wait. We see that Paul is taking up the work of persuading others and we see what he is trying to persuade people of, but how does he go about doing it? Paul says, what we are is known to God and I hope it is known to your conscience. Remember, Paul doesn't employ disgraceful, underhanded ways. He doesn't tamper with the word of God. As Paul goes about the business of persuading people, of trying to reconcile people with Christ, he does this for no personal gain and without manipulation. He simply trusts the word of God to accomplish the work of God. He, and we like him, cannot save anyone by our own strength. Salvation is of the Lord, is it not? So Paul's methodology of persuading people is by means of sincerity for God's glory alone. And his conscience is clear because God knows his heart and he hopes that just as it is known to God that Paul is sincere, that it would be known among the Corinthians as well. As Paul makes the point about him being a sincere minister of Christ, he's not commending himself again, but he's giving the Corinthians a reason to boast about him. He's giving the Corinthians a reason to be proud and a way to defend against those who would brag about the outward appearance over what's in the heart. God does not lean harder or depend more on those in this life who have wealth or status. No, even if our outward appearance is weak, like a clay jar or a tattered tent, God's spirit dwells within us and strengthens us. And this is something that you must look beyond the physical appearance to see. So in verse 13, Paul says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. There's a few different interpretations on this text, but I think that because of the context of the, of the text and the letter that Paul is making the point, that it may look like he is crazy to continue in the ministry despite all of the opposition that he's faced. We know that at some point, at least once and more than that, but earlier in this letter, he said at one point, he thought he was going to die. So why keep going? Why continue in this lifestyle if all it's leading you to is oppression and pain? Why keep going? Paul just got done referencing those who boast of outward appearance to the unbelievers who valued a person based on what they could see externally. All they could see with Paul was that he was weak and constantly facing affliction. So why wouldn't they think he was mad? So Paul addresses this saying, even if I look crazy, I do this all for God. Now let me pose this question for us. 
How many of us are willing to have the same mindset as Paul? How many of us are willing to be so devoted to the work of Christ that to the world we look like we are out of our minds? Now, don't get me wrong. The end goal is not to be different. The end goal is to glorify God. But I worry that it's often that we're more concerned about what other people think of us than of what God commands of us. So perhaps this will be a good question for all of us to meditate on this morning and throughout the rest of this day. So Paul says, if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. And if we are in our right mind, it's for you. The point is, no matter how he appears in his ministry, nothing he does is for himself. It's all for the glory of God and for the good of others. Next in the next three verses, Paul shows again why he seeks to persuade others and he'll show us why he does all things to please God. And from this, we see that we are to do the same. It's because Paul and us likewise are controlled by the love of Christ. We are controlled by the love of Christ. Verses 14 through 16 say, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. How is it that Paul presses on in his ministry, even though he's weak and weary, even though he's battered and he's bruised? Why does he press on? Because he is compelled by the love of Christ. It's not primarily even because of a sense of duty, but the love of Christ that Christ displays to his people has filled Paul. So Paul follows the commands of God's word, and this isn't burdensome for him. This isn't a, a burdensome task for him, but his heart has become aligned with the will of God. And the things that God loves are the things that Paul loves. And it's out of this love that Paul is urged on in his ministry. It is this love that controls Paul and takes away even the possibility of him living for himself. As one commentator, Barnett, says, for Paul... Egocentricity has given way for Christocentricity. And how does this work? Because one has died for all, therefore all have died. Because Jesus himself took up the cross and died a horrific death, all who follow him has, have also died. Now, some of you may be listening and you don't understand this. You ask, now, if Jesus died and all of his followers died, what was the point of Jesus dying in the first place if everyone was going to die after that anyway? What's the point of that? What does that even mean? Look no further than to verse 15 for the clarity that we need. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Our dying refers to our dying to self our denying ourselves. Our dying refers to our inability to continue to indulge in the flesh. He died for us so that those who live can now live for him. We are compelled by the love of Christ, the love that was extended to the unlovable, the love that was displayed to the hungry being fed, to the thirsty being given water, 
to the blind being given sight, to the diseased being healed. And is this not us? Is this not you and is this not me? We may not have known it, but at one point, all of us were starving. All of us were thirsty. All of us were blind and all of us were diseased. But Jesus being rich in his love gave us himself. And in doing so, has he not satisfied our hunger by giving us the bread of life? Has he not satisfied our thirst by bringing us to a well that does not run dry? Has he not given us eyes to see as he is the one who removes the veil from our eyes? And is it not him who, though we were diseased and our body riddled with sin, is it not him whose image we are conformed to more and more as the sin in us is mortified? For it is not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick. It doesn't matter if you're broken. It doesn't matter if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you have no name because there's nothing that you could ever offer God for your salvation anyway. It is in love that he invites those who thirst to come to the waters. That those with no money to come and eat, to buy the wine and the milk without money and without price. It is this love climaxed in Christ's death that results in us dying to self and living for the one who died for us. From now on, Paul says this in verse 16, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. At one point, we only ever cared about the outer appearance. We looked to the strong in this world, the well-known, the rich. That was all that mattered to us. That was all that we could even see. And even Jesus himself at one point, we regarded as simply a man. But when we were raised to life with Christ, our eyes were open. It was as if we lived in a dense fog and a gust of wind came and finally we can see. Everything became clear. We no longer value people based on external appearances, but what matters to the Christian is the condition of their fellow man's soul. We now know that the greatest need that people have is not physical, but spiritual. And not only that, but now that the fog is cleared, we see that Christ is exceedingly more than a mere man. We see that he is the image of the invisible God, the first fruits of all creation, that by him and through him were all things made, that it's by the word of his power that he upholds the universe, that by living the perfect life, and dying the most horrific death that he could, he has made purification for our sins. And now he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is our highest treasure, the most valuable prized possession that we have. He's worthy of all praise and he is the Lord of our life. And since we no longer regard people according to the flesh, and since we can see the value of Jesus Christ and our need for him, this should make you concerned for the souls of others because you know that they need Christ just as much as you do. Do you have a deep desire to see the lost become found? I mean, this has been the theme of the week, has it not? To see the depraved become saved? 43% of the world is considered unreached. They have no idea who Jesus is. 
And some of you this week have become more aware of the global need for evangelism, and I hope that this burns a fire in you even more. Did you know that as of 2021, for every $100,000 a Christian made, $1.70 went to reaching unreached people. Americans have spent more money in recent years buying Halloween costumes for their pets than they have to reach the unreached people. I ask again, do you have a desire to be saved? Or do you have a desire to see the lost saved? You don't have to give your life to live among a tribal people. You can send people or you can go, but we must care. We must care because we have been given eyes to see the beauty and the necessity of Christ. Continuing on in verses 17 through 19, Paul says plainly what he has essentially been saying throughout this whole section. In Christ, we are a new creation. We are a new creation. This is what he says in verses 17 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Because we've been made new, we can understand the fear of the Lord. We can see beyond an outer persona. We can aim to do all things for God's glory and have become incapable of living for ourselves because of the surpassing love of Christ. When God saves us, he makes us a new creation. He changes us entirely. The old self is gone. The self that was a slave to sin, a resident of the kingdom of darkness, a practitioner of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness that was on the path to death is no more. Though sin once reigned in our bodies, though our minds were kept from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God, though we once walked on that path leading straight to death, we have now been completely and radically and scandalously made new. And how did this happen? Verse 18 tells us it's from God who through Christ both reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God, through Christ, has brought us to him. This was completely unmerited on our end. You see, when we reconcile with others, usually there are offenses on both ends that need to be apologized for. And at the very least, even if it was only one person that made a mistake, in order for that relationship to be reconciled, the person who made the mistake is the one who has to seek to make things right. Reconciliation is different than forgiveness. If someone wrongs you and doesn't apologize for it, you can and you should forgive them still. But your relationship with them will be different than it was before. Therefore, you won't be reconciled. For the relationship to be restored, the person who was in the wrong must seek to make things right. The difference here in this text is that God, who has done nothing wrong, is the initiator of the reconciliation. That is mercy beyond what we can imagine. God could have just forgiven us of our sins and that would have been more than we ever deserved. But he doesn't leave it at that. He forgives us of our sins and then he initiates a relationship with him. He brings us into his fold and he makes us his family. Again, 
This is mercy beyond what we could imagine. And it should inspire in us an awe that we can't explain. And not only does he reconcile us to himself, but he also gives us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19 says that he entrusts us with the message of reconciliation. And just like in chapter one, when we talked about how God takes the comforted and turns them into comforters, here, God takes the reconciled and he turns them into the proclaimers of his reconciliation. This is the ultimate turning of the tables. God takes the rebel to his kingdom, God forgives him of his trespasses, and then he takes it a step further and he initiates a relationship with him, and then he transforms the man who was once an insurgent to his kingdom and allows him a role in God's redemption for his creation. This is a complete 180. This is certainly what he did with Paul on the road to Damascus. And isn't this what he's done with us? Oh, how far we once were from God. And yet now, look how far he has removed our transgressions from us. How great our rebellion once was. And yet now, look how great is his steadfast love toward us. In the closing verses of this section, Paul shows us that we are to be ambassadors for Christ. We are to be ambassadors for Christ, and this is verses 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. We've seen the beauty and the splendor of God's reconciliation of us to him. Such grace is great, and it's lofty, and how are we supposed to respond to this? Well, Paul says it plainly for us. We are to be ambassadors for Christ. We are to be Christ's representatives here on this earth. And that means we are to live how Christ lived and to walk how Christ walked. This is no matter the consequences or the conflict that we might face. Some people thought Paul was out of his mind because of how devoted he was to God. Because he wouldn't give up in the ministry Are we prepared to imitate Paul in this way? Friends, to be an ambassador for Christ is not a burdensome task, but it's the highest privilege. When we experience God's saving grace firsthand and are reconciled to God, we cannot simply sit down and be quiet. We can't keep that to ourselves. The love of Christ compels us to respond by using our new lives to glorify God and to tell others about him. And what's more, God doesn't leave us to spread the message of reconciliation on our own. No, if there's one thing that we've learned from this study in 2 Corinthians is that we are completely and totally reliant on God because we don't have the strength to make it on our own. And he makes the point here that God makes his appeal through us. He is the one making the appeal, actively working, not leaving us on our own. And he allows us to be the means by which he does this. And some of you might be wondering, how is it possible that a holy God be reconciled with unholy men? In verse 21, we learn how. For our sake, God made Christ to be the offering for sin when Christ never sinned. So that through the offering of Christ, we can be made right with God. And I know I said earlier that the ultimate turning of the tables was when God turns a rebellion into a reconciler. But perhaps I spoke prematurely there. 
Because even more than that, the ultimate turning of the tables is God switching Jesus' righteousness with our sinfulness and pouring out his wrath on his son and reconciling us with himself. Friends, are you reconciled with God? Are you in a relationship with him today? If you aren't, what's holding you back? There's nothing more satisfying. There's nothing more lovely. There's nothing more purposeful or rewarding than living your life for God and taking part in his restoration for his people. And maybe today you are in a relationship with God, but the beauty of his grace has become dull to you. Do you remember now just how much God has done for you to bring you into his family, into his fold, to graft you into the tree of his people? Do you see how he's made you a new creation through the sacrifice of his innocent son? Does your heart leap at the thought that God has reconciled himself with you? And now, when in our response to this, being an ambassador for Christ, this doesn't mean that we need to go and live among a tribal people or go and translate the Bible in languages that hasn't been translated in, though we need people to do that. But every one of you has the opportunity to be an ambassador for him where you are today and where you're going to be, whether that's as a financial advisor, whether that's in the classroom, whether that's in Washington, D.C. Our response to God's grace in our lives can only be one thing, and that's to live out our lives in a way of worship of the one true king who came and died for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us and more good than we can ever imagine. In fact, we can never comprehend the depths of your grace and your mercy. All we can compare it to are things of this world like an ocean or things that seem bottomless and and unending. And Father, thank you for that grace that you've given to us and that love you've given to us. Thank you for how despite we could never earn your love, you love us and you've reconciled yourself to us. And I ask that today we would see that and we would fall in love with you for that. I ask that it would change us and, and strengthen our resolve and our desire to live for you and that where we are right now, we would be given a passion to follow you and to follow your word. Father, I ask that no matter where we are in five years, 10 years, that you would use us more than we could ever imagine to accomplish your mission and to give you glory. Thank you for your son. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>